and I'll describe it here, that the absence of God is an infinite absence. It's an eternal absence. Um, that certainly that will be, in other words, there is a time and place when I think this is what judgment and salvation is all about. There will be a time when God will not be absent anywhere. But as long as there is sinful, there are sinful humans, there's sinful human uh, nature, then there is this, uh, you know, there is this possibility for living in the absence of God. Uh, that is something on the order of what Zizek and others are describing. Of course, for them, they don't have God. They've only got his absence. But I think that that's what it means to believe in God, is that evil is ultimately not the ground that is definitive of us. I think we only know that. We only know that absence of God as the image of God choosing not God. Right. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, it. I, I think you could almost describe that as the marred image of God. Mm-hmm. turned away from God inward um, that, you know, we are designed as relational beings. We are designed to be God-like in the way we love one another. We love ourselves. We love our, we love the, the our surroundings, the world we live in. I, to me, that's how we treat each other and how we treat the world is the same. Mm-hmm. The, um, but that's that marred image it, to me. That that's a that's a major that's a major distinction to make. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I think that that uh, once you get that straight, and then you understand, oh well, salvation is participation in the presence of God through Christ by the Spirit, and then you can talk about. Uh, you know, the the sense in which there is a real-world deliverance, and I assume this is what Jerzak is also getting at in uh, the idea of identification, that it's not just that God has identified with us, but as in recapitulation, you know, God has become man, that man you know, the way that in theosis that man might become God or that we might say in a more orthodox fashion that man might become a co-participant in the Trinity. What if what we're really saying is God has become man so that man might become man? Because, and I think this, this again draws right out of Bonhoeffer too, that when, you know, as as we are images of God, and I always drew this, I wish I could do this on a podcast, but it doesn't really come across so well. It's a very visual illustration. But I always drew a circle, and this circle is God. And I would draw little circles around it, draw a line to it. But those circles are images of God in relationship. And I always drew a little triangle trinity inside that circle. Mm. That was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Neither one, they're, they're all, Father's not Son, Son is not Spirit, Spirit's not Father, but they're all God. That in, is their relationship with one another that makes them divine. They're God. Mm. They're all the same, one person. Well, what is it we say when we're part of the church? Um, we are one body. 
Paul's not Jason. Jason is not faith. Faith is not Vanjie. Vanjie's not Paul. But Paul's church. Faith is church. Jason is church. Vanjie is church. Um, we are one body together that we are designed to live that way. Well, what Bonhoeffer says is, you know, that sin is the desire to be the source of knowledge of good and evil, to take what is God's and make it ourselves. So we kick God out of that circle. We put ourselves there. Well, um, you know, all of the brokenness that happens happens because now we are a broken people trying to make ourselves the center Rather than be an image of God, Bonhoeffer says, now our likeness to God is a stolen one. And um, this is all out of his book, Ethics. Now, um, this is what I took from it after, you know, kind of trying to wrestle with identification and Christus Victor. What is it that happens? Jesus is the son of God who draws himself out of that circle and makes himself one of our little circles. He is now fully human. He is what God looks like as a human. So what is he really doing? He is restoring what it means to be the image of God. This is what God, so what does it mean to be a human? I think Bonhoeffer even says, if you're not, if you're trying to put yourself in God's position, that's a marred image. You're not even the image of God anymore. Well, Jesus restores what it is to be human in the first place. And I think this also is Karl Barth. Jesus is the one truly human being. Right. That, right. Um, that, so here is, here's what it means to be human. So now we look at Jesus and we say, what is Jesus? I always drew a little cross next to that circle when Jesus would come out. So what does Jesus call us? If we want to look like God as a human, you pick up your cross and you look like God is a human because that's who God is. God is the, is the human with a cross. So now you pick up that cross and by picking up that cross, you put God back in his place. You follow Jesus, putting Jesus as God back in that place. And it's a restoration. It rest, it restores your relationship to God. It restores your relationship to the world around you, to the people around you that ultimately it makes it's it's an attempt to return what is human about us to make human to because to be human is to not be god but to be the image of god i like your explanation better than mine <laughs> you always say that but i always think that you're trying to make me feel better about the fact that i'm not as smart as you <laughs> well i think i think that what part of what uh you're describing is then a new definition of humanity that what it means to be human is not exclusive of who god is uh but it is the openness then to uh dwelling with God and God dwelling with us. That is what it means to be him. Let me take, let me take that a step further. Let me take that darkly. Cause you always say that you're the one that goes dark in our conversations, but let me, let me take your place. Um, what that implies then, I, uh, uh, we were talking about a, a situation, a friend of mine and I were talking uh, on social media, on a private conversation about you and uh, something that happened to you. And uh, I said, well, I think that the person that did that to him and to his wife 
I have a hard time accepting that person as a Christian. And this person said, I'm not sure if I'm willing to go that far. Well, my response to that is always, well, I am. Uh, uh, Actually, if I was going to be really honest, I would say I'm not 100% convinced that that person is a human. That when you, and I think this, uh, you could pull this right out of Romans 1, um, when Paul talks about something that people have been given over to evil, that when we are given over to evil and call it righteousness, that in a way it's not, it's not as accurate to say, oh, well, that's not really Christian. Well, we're afraid to say that. What if in reality it's not really human? It's inhuman. Um, gassing children. I'm, I'm kind of stuck on that. I'm stuck on some of these things I've seen the last couple of weeks. And weeks. That's not, it's not just that it's unchristian. I mean, that terminology has almost no meaning to us. It's not shocking anymore to us. Yeah, yeah. It's that it actually is so ungodly that it's not human. Well, this is very Kierkegaardian, you know. This is uh, Kierkegaard's point, is that we can actually fail to be human. Uh, That it's, uh, you know, which I think puts things in their proper perspective. What does it mean to fail to be human? Uh, Well, that means you're subhuman, that in some way uh, that you're driven by forces. I mean, this is Paul's description that when in, you know, that it's no longer I that do it, but it's sin that dwells within me. What he's describing is the loss of human agency. And I think that when people do evil and when ultimately they are defined by evil, there is a complete loss of human agency that no, no longer qualifies them. And of course, we're not probably in the place that God is, but God is going to be able to declare uh, your irredeemable. Human. Yeah. Uh, I think, um, you know, as, as we've been talking about this, you, you run to Romans uh, 7. Um, I tend to run to Romans 1. Um, I had to wrestle with, in dealing with some of the people and the experiences I've dealt with, trying to understand what does Paul mean when he says God gave them over? You know, he, he describes this sort of spiral of things that happen. People are, they do this and then they do that and then they do that. And things just get worse and worse and spin out of control. And then, and then he says, because they did not see fit to acknowledge God. <laughs> if I run back to my Bonhoeffer model, if you don't recognize who's actually in the center of this, who is actually in the God position because they didn't see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them over to a, an NIV uh, and it's Calvinism translates that to a depraved mind. Well, um, the language is a play on words because they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them over to a mind which could not see fit to acknowledge him. Um, that there is a point where I think that's that's that moral agency piece that, yeah, they give up moral agency. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole conversation to be had about moral. I can – let me tell you, I've had to think about this. 
that um, I mean, think about the the. I'm hesitant to do this because I have a lot of friends who've been in the military. <laughs> but you know, uh, Stan Hauerwas's book of a, of a couple of years ago called "The Story of Theology" or "The Work of Theology." He has a chapter in which he's dealing with Alistair McIntyre's um, understanding of. I can't remember which chapter it is. Alistair McIntyre's understanding of what it means to be a moral agent. And, and McIntyre is wrestling with um, whether or not you are um, – uh, when somebody um, is doing something based on I was told to do it, uh-huh. this is my orders. I, was gi- I have given up moral agency. That you're no longer a moral agent. And, and I think you know, what you really draw from that in this context is that once you've ad- – abandoned moral agency you're doing something regardless of whether or not you think it's right or wrong simply because you've been told to do it is you know that's really almost kind of in the military i think it's what we train people to do we don't want you to be a moral agent in the military we want you to shoot where we point um we don't want you uh we don't want you to be a moral agent when it comes to the state because you need to follow the state you need to support the state we don't want you to be a moral agent when it comes to who I tell you to fire. Fire that person if I want you to fire that person. Um, that we're all sort of in this, that's part of the the residence, the reticence we have to, um, to name what's evil about the powers. If I name what's evil about the powers, then I have to say that my participation in the powers is is complicity with that evil in the powers because I support the powers and they're because I've, I'm not a moral agent. Uh And so um, that what we mean by being a moral agent, being human, being able to say, I won't participate in what's evil, identifying with the cross of Christ, a refusal to participate in evil. Uh Um, This all ends up wrapping up really neatly for me in a package that works really good in my mind. I'm not sure I can say it very neatly. Well, let let me, I think that you've hit upon something that, that Christ then in refusing violence is maintaining moral agency. That is, and in this sense, you can talk about his kind of, you know, is he impervious? Well, no, not impervious, but the idea is that he never relinquishes uh, control by giving himself over to the lack of control that is definitive of violence. And well, so we- you, can, you can talk about him, you know, uh, almost treating evil as nothing, but, uh, you know, that could be easily misunderstood in the sense that, he doesn't, you know, evil's not something you can duke it out with. I don't know, Faith and I was watching, uh, I don't know if you saw the movie Fences. You know, the main character there, Denzel Washington, is talking about duking it out. You know, he's going to fight death. He's going to hit death with a baseball bat. Uh, well, that's not really the nature of the enemy. And neither is, you know, evil than something that you engage in that sort of confrontation. The way that you defeat evil, in fact, 
is in not giving in to it and refusing to acknowledge its power. And that's what you get in peaceableness over and against nonviolence. That's, that's the pervasiveness of the lie, though. I mean, the pervasiveness of the lie is, is such that, I mean, it's just taken for granted. I have a good friend, a good friend of my, my wife and a good friend of mine, even today posted uh, saying, oh, somebody was asking me, why am I, you know, why am I going into this place late at night? Oh, well, I'm always packing a gun, you know, and so I'm safe. It's just taken for granted that the way you fight evil is by brute force or with violence. There's violence, and the the way to do it is always violence. Well, that is, I think, you know, I think that's the way you said it, is that Jesus is telling us on the cross, and, and, and there's a resistance. Well, that's not what Jesus, Jesus, it's easier to say Jesus was taking my punishment from God because if he wasn't, then that means that if he was really taken, taking the violence of humanity, then that implies that the way to respond to the violence of humanity is to die on a cross, is to when that person comes to you and says, uh, you know, it's, it's time, then you, then it's time. Um, the well, Paul said that, well, the world says that's foolishness. It doesn't make any sense. But to those of us who are being saved by it, that's the power of the gospel. That's the power. That it really does. Jesus was saying this is what humanity really is. If you want to be a human, and being human is being God's image, then this is what you look like. I'm identifying with your suffering. So you can't say, well, God, you really don't know what it's like to be me. You know, to me, that's what Vanjie and I, when we suffer, and trust me, it's been years of it. Uh, when we suffer, I was even saying to God, I was praying yesterday. I'll be honest. I was praying yesterday about, about a job. Um, you know, we've been looking for a good job for Vanjie for a while, and it's been a long it's been a long, hard search. And I just said, God, could we please have a job? Could she please just have a job? Yeah. And forgetting for a moment that there are a gazillion people that don't have a job. And, uh-huh. you know, just to, for that moment, just allowing myself to be selfish. And, you know, I'm not saying that this is the voice of God, but I am going to say that sometimes I, sometimes I don't know if I'm just making his argument or he's making his argument for me, but I, I, I think – you know, you're not the only person. And I just, I said, yes, well, I don't talk to you very much. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, mm. here it is. What am I saying in that moment? Well, you know, you really don't understand what this is about. You, you are, we like this idea that God's up there. He doesn't understand what I'm going through, but he's got all these sort of mystical answers that make sense of all this. And someday mm. I'm going to understand them. No, 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 no. God has been through it with you, which means that there is no easy answer to this suffering other than you're just going to have to go through it, just like Jesus had to go through it. And it's okay to stop and say, oh, my God, please let this pass from me, but not my will, but yours. Yeah, and so ultimately, 
we put ourselves, and I'm, I'm not saying this, I'm, I'm saying this to me, because I don't know, you can almost, you almost can't say this to other people, that we put ourselves in the hands of God, our security is in the hands of God. And in a sense, there is a peaceableness that comes from that, in which we need not give ourselves over to the panic, to the tendency to go pack and you know, my, my, you know, my protection to get a, a bulldog and a big stick. Uh, but in giving ourselves over to the peaceableness that God gives, it may be, in fact, that we suffer death. But even there, we understand that, our, that uh, God has secured our life. Um. You know what I think would be a really good way? I wish I could read this whole chapter, but it, it's uh, terribly lengthy, but it wouldn't come across well on a podcast. This is from Jerzak? This is from Brita Miko's chapter called, uh-huh. called um, Die With Me. A couple of quick moments from it. This road is harder than I thought. The way of love is much, much harder. It's so hard, in fact, I don't know if I'm ready to do it. It's easier to follow the rules than to love. It's easier to believe the right things than to love. And then in in these little italics, she'll say things that kind of sounds like it's supposed to come from another voice. This is what we mean by the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. I can go through an entire day believing the standard evangelical statement of faith, bodily resurrection of the dead, and all that. I can get up the next day and do it again easy. And the whole program of evangelical morality, I passed it today. I didn't get drunk on absinthe. I didn't create, pass, or smoke a hookah pipe. I did not become a meth cook. The things we measure ourselves by are the things we succeed at daily. However, I truly lack the ability to love again and again. Today I failed at love, but there is redemption. Even my small daughter forgives me. Even my baby forgives me. So I do keep trying. I am just a failure at it. By looking at the doctrines and rules instead of love, I feel better about myself. If I make it about the doctrines and the rules instead of love, I feel fine. And later when she wrestles again with dealing with this Picton character. I'm immersed in blood. I am under blood, drowning. Blood is, <laughs> excuse me, blood is all over Jesus too. The blood of each of those beautiful, desperate women that were loved, he is covered in their blood. The blood is deep because it is the blood from all their wounds. Dear Jesus, it is on you. It's all over us. This is when she talks about Jesus' blood. It covers us and makes all things new. And she quotes the Gospel of John. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. The one who feeds on me will live because of me. John six fifty five through 57 It's red and wet and sticky. It's all over me. It covers me and makes me new. 
And the only way through is to drink it. Take this cup from me, please. If there's any other way, if there's any other road, the italics, maybe we can't do it and we can't avoid it. So we cast ourselves on Christ, pleading with him to do it in us. Surrender, not despair. Surrender. Die with me. Drink my blood. Jesus didn't drink it for me. He drank it, and I need to drink it with him. God, help me not choke. Jesus said, yes, in fact, you will drink this cup and be saved. And because it is a cup of salvation, you enter into the work of redemption. Grace is released. Real grace that can transform a picton or rescue a prostitute. I want to rescue you. But more than that, I want to let this kernel of wheat in you fall into the ground and die and then sprout up to bear much good fruit. For every picton that knows the love and forgiveness of God, we save how many prostitutes? For every pedophile that hears the good news that they are forgiven and their guilt is atoned for, how many children grow up whole? For the joy set before us, we endure the cross of love and forgiveness, despising its shame, and anticipate the fruit of Christ, the fruit that Christ bears. The life of Christ must be the way through in this world. Can we walk in it at all? It is the way of union. It is the way of the cross. It is the way of blood. The new covenant is blood. Our justice crushes mercy. His kisses it. Sorry, I get a little emotional when, uh, when, yeah, I, yeah, when I read that chapter. That's, that's moving. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's probably a little different way than we normally go with our podcasts, but uh, this is all very real, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think you kind of have to be in a place where you've where you've had somebody's put you on a cross uh-huh. and you've had to wrestle with what you said earlier before we started our recording. Um, you've had to wrestle with How, what's the right way to respond? Are we, are we just to pretend that this isn't really evil at all? Or do we acknowledge that it's evil and bear it? Huh. And the, every fiber of my being is always saying, well, no, we don't want to bear it. And even today, I, I don't do very good at it. And yet, what we've been called to do is to bear it. Which is in the end all we can do. And that's and it we're enabled to do that, I think. That's what Christianity does. And so someone who has neither, you know, experienced or understands that evil or uh, misses the fact that this is what Christianity is about. Uh, you know, you you can't wish 
this you know you can't wish a cross upon anyone and yet there is the sense that we find it's only in as as you're as she's describing it's only those people you know it's sort of like people have been to war together and they're bonded together or they're a band of brothers well i think the band of brothers and sisters that is the church are people who have endured that suffering with christ and are bound together then uh in that understanding that can only be shared at that gut level well if i had to if i had to name an example i to be completely honest i know it's going to sound like i'm just saying this but when i was getting ready to move away from missouri um because my life had fallen apart you know everything i had tried to build and dream had been taken from me and there had been injustice there. Um, It was you and faith (laughs) that were right there in it with me. And I know that, that God was in it with me too. I mean, he went through that with me and yet it's still that it's still that tangible witness and you guys always said the same thing, which is, this is really unfair and wrong. Uh-huh. You didn't have easy answers. You didn't pretend like it was some, there was some easy answer that would resolve all this. And, well, you know, it's all going to work out or any of that stuff. You were just right there uh-huh. acknowledging that this is evil and wrong and, and, that, and you were bearing that with us. So, you know, what we do, and this is, I think, the difficulty when people are are faced with the suffering of another person, one of the reasons we throw out these answers is it's a desperate attempt to not bear a cross. To acknowledge their suffering is to admit that I could suffer too. So you have to have an answer to dismiss it. Of course, it hurts like hell to have your pain dismissed. Yet, when when we say, okay, look, it's dismissed, here's the easy answer, that we're always trying to throw up that wall so we can still feel like we're in control, we're not going to experience that, it is only when we stop and say, ouch, with that person, that we stop and bear that cross with them. And that Jesus is, did. And that's the, I mean, what you're describing is every barrier. This is, you know, the rate, why can't the racist, and we're all racist to the degree that we cannot empathize with another, a person of another color. Right. Can you put yourself in their shoes? Can you understand their daily, you know, uh, oppression? Uh, As long as you, as you put up some, you know, kind of blindness, uh, then that enables you not only to be, you know, blind to their problem, but the blind, you're blinded by your own prejudice, your own shortcomings, and the tiny little world that you live in. And why do we deny that that suffering really happens? We deny that suffering happens to deny complicity. Um, of course, it's not that bad. And I've, I've had friends that have said this. You know, I think black people just need to get over it. Look, the situation we're in in our, in our world right now, um, we've, there's been hundreds of years of racism 
that has created a world in which being a person of color is is still puts you at a disadvantage, still puts you as a receiver of pain, and still puts you as a receiver of hate, mm-hmm. even hate that on the surface doesn't think it's actually hating. Kate, that CD that you and Faith gave us, uh, Kate Campbell, there's a song where she talks about how we deny the suffering of the world. There is no Holocaust. There is no pain. There is no real, uh, there is no poverty. There is no sickness. There is no, we try to tell ourselves this and tell ourselves this and tell ourselves this. And she also notes that when you deny this, she starts talking about the Sermon on the Mount. There is no Sermon on the Mount. Who is it that Jesus says the kingdom identifies with in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who endure injustice. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who endure persecution (laughs) over and over and over. Jesus' kingdom identifies not with these people at the top of these power structures. It calls them to come down from those power structures it identifies with suffering and it makes it gives suffering meaning so that when you suffer now it's not that our suffering just has no purpose and it isn't that god gives us purpose doesn't mean it's all part of some great big plan but now my suffering has purpose because because jesus suffers with me when i suffer i suffer with christ I'm on the cross with him. I'm that thief next to him saying, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Uh-huh. Maybe this, you know, the, uh, the, the community that's, what is it, Fight Club? The, yeah. the guy is going around to all these communities of you know, broken people and trying to find, and of course he finds little glimpses of community that maybe what you're describing then is what ultimately the church is to be, a church of people who are broken and recognize it and suffer together. Well, I think, yeah, when you, exactly, when you read the book of Hebrews, you know, Hebrews has this sort of pattern where he tries to explain to the Jewish Christians who are thinking about going back to Judaism because they're suffering so much. Um, Well, first of all, Jesus is better than Judaism, so why would you go back to that? Jesus is better than the Old Testament, or at least he, he fulfills the Old Testament, so why would you try to abandon Jesus? And then he makes some of these statements that, um, you know, there was one that was always thrown at me as a kid. They were always trying to convince us why we should go to church. Of course, church was boring, so they always had to try to figure out a way to convince us why we should go to church, right? Well, you know, don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together. That was all we could pull out of Hebrews is don't forsake the assembly. Um, yeah, I know that football game is going to be fun, but don't forsake the assembly. Well, one of the reasons why we have a hard time convincing people why they should go to church is because our we've, all, we've convinced them that their faith doesn't entail suffering. And if their faith doesn't entail suffering, then I don't need the body of Christ. But let me tell you, if my faith entails suffering, this is, uh, this is why Paul calls on Timothy when he's suffering in prison. Who's he remember? He's weeping when he remembers how Timothy cried when he left. 
He's asking for his friends if they could send his coat. He's reaching out to his friends when I'm all alone and when I'm suffering, when when bearing a cross has been too much, who is it I reach out for? I reach out for the people who are in it with me. When Jesus reached out, all his friends had left. When we reach out, we hope that our friends haven't. And our friends sometimes will. Because they don't want to bear it with us. They're afraid they they're afraid that if they acknowledge that we're going through the suffering, that they too will share in that suffering. Well, you're all gonna share in the suffering. Everybody's and what, gonna And what's worse if you have a church that in fact in which there is no room for acknowledging suffering, then when you do encounter this thing in your life you understand how vapid and empty this community is. There's nothing there. Nobody knows this better than the disability community in the churches. And that's the thing that I see the disability community struggling to get people to acknowledge, that this suffering is real. Uh Uh, Amos Young is one that my wife, uh, he influenced a lot of my wife's graduate study. Amos Young comes from from Pentecostal churches. And, you know, one of the things that I think uh, one of the positions that that tends to get popular in that tradition is this idea, we don't have to suffer. You know, God's going to, if you just have enough faith, you know, everything's going to work out just right for you. How do you say that to a couple of parents? whose child just was born with some debilitating disability. And now this is the rest of their life, and it's the rest of his life, or her life. Saying, you know, well, uh, God made you suffer so you could help the next person that suffered is uh, pretty empty. Yeah, yeah. But But let me tell you, saying, come to church, We'll love your kid and we'll love you and I'll put my arm around you and I'll come and cry with you when you need crying with and I'll come and laugh with you when it's time to laugh and and every week I'll commit myself to you can leave your kid with me. I'll change that feeding tube. I'll I'll put up with those behaviors. Go to the movies or we'll find somebody watch and we'll go to the movies together. You know how badly a parent of an autistic kid needs to hear somebody say that? I'll be on this cross with you. That's what it means to be human, I think. And you can tell your church community the authenticity of it or inauthenticity of it, that when you do encounter these things or you have these experiences, I mean, what we've experienced here is suddenly we – we had no community where we thought we had a group of friends or Christians. Oh, yeah. oh, what happened to all those people? Well, those are the people that no longer can identify with us uh, because of the, the, the we're now outcasts uh, because uh, they're part of the group that has said, let us do evil that good may abound. So, because, yeah, if, you've, if, if, if part of your identity is wrapped up in the power structures – that that benefit from doing the evil, uh, and uh, it's almost always what it is. I mean, it it the Pharisees and Sadducees that collaborated to, and the and the priests that collaborated to convince Pilate to murder Jesus. Um, these are all people that 
that benefited from the power structures that um, that would crucify an evil person. And they ironically had to accuse an innocent person of evil, <laughs> the evil that they were doing in order to kill somebody to maintain that power structure. Um, our world is wrapped up in those power structures and it's tied to them. And our, a lot of folks who believe that they are Bible believing Christians are tied to those power structures and that those power structures are more important than their brother or sister that is suffering because the, those power structures make them feel comfortable and secure and comfort and security and safety in our culture, in all cultures is tends to be more important than dying on a cross. That's I think what Paul said by this is foolishness to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews. Mm-hmm. That's clearly Brett Amico's uh, what she's getting. Yeah, yeah. If, you, if you haven't read that, it's just it, it's worth every moment. So the the book by Brad Jerzak, two books. Say the name again. Is one is stricken by God and the other? Yeah, stricken by God has, is the one that that you told me about that. I have that had such a profound impact on me. And then you, you've, um, and then the uh, other is, I think it's called a more beautiful gospel, a more Christ-like God. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of done. It's interesting. It's kind of almost done as like a study that a group could do with discussion questions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Jerzak more than I think any other scholar is good at writing on a popular level that uh, just anybody I think could pick up and do. Um, whereas the stricken book, uh, his chapter is, is, I don't say dense, but some of the other ones can, are, are a little more academically dense. Yeah. I, I discovered that book and, and uh, uh, you read it. <laughs> and I've been listening to you explain it to me ever since. Cause I've actually never, <laughs> you know, I if you only read Jerzak's and Miko's chapters, it's worth it's worth having. Um, but there's many more chapters that are profound. Um, uh, there's uh, 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 Mark Baker's book on uh, how how what what some of the authors do in that book is is run with. How does identification in Christus Victor work out in real world situations? Mark Baker takes it to a Honduran barrio um, where there are social structures of machismo and marianismo. How does that work out to undo these these structures that keep people enslaved to these systems? Um, and uh, Miroslav Wolf has a chapter in this book. Um, uh, N.T. Wright, uh, uh, Brita Miko is a, uh, a J. Denny Weaver. Um, I was introduced to J. Denny Weaver through that book. I've read some of his other work. Um, uh, obviously, Mennonite uh, theologians. Is that is that Jerzak's uh, background? You know, I don't really know much more about him. I've seen a couple videos of Jerzak, and mm-hmm. I've read a couple of books that he's done. Um, he, but his the, the identification model has come out of massive. It's been a wonderful conversation. It has. I'm afraid it went way long.